Ready to add a big dose of positivity and empowered perspective to your day? You've come to the right place. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Here, we tackle everything from imposter syndrome and confidence building to the best advice on how to lead yourself through life pivots, including the ones that knock you flat. For the past three years, I've talked to hundreds of experts about their stories. Here, you'll find their actionable advice and lessons, as well as my own tools that you can put to use in your own life. Stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. You know, our lives and careers involve constant choices. Some day-to-day, run-of-the-mill things, and then there are the real biggies like changing jobs, changing careers, taking a break, getting married, having children, moving across the country. Taking risks, large ones and small ones, comes with the territory. It's part of life. And make no mistake, not deciding is deciding. Do we take the safe and steady route, stick where we are, or do we roll the dice, throw caution to the wind, and really go after what we want? If the thought of all this risk-taking scares you just a bit or makes you uncomfortable, you're human. But today, we're going to talk about how we can teach ourselves to separate and understand calculated risk-taking from fear and emotion. They are not the same things. And perhaps even more on point, how do you build the confidence needed to take both those smaller risks as well as those bigger risks? How do you develop tools that help you put fear into context so that you can take smart, calculated risks, ones that help you leverage your experience and that continue to challenge you and help you really grow? and potentially to create even greater value for yourself and others. Today's conversation is all about this topic of risk-taking, but it's also about thinking differently about risk-taking. I'm talking to one of the most innovative serial entrepreneurs and risk-takers in Silicon Valley. Her name is Sukinder Singh Cassidy. She's been at the forefront of technology that we all essentially take for granted at this point, including leading Google's effort to develop Google Maps. She's launched startups, led major business transitions, and she's embraced risk over and over and over again. In our conversation today, Sukinder shares her approach for evaluating risks and some tools that help her deal with and put fear into context. She has also written a terrific book that's entitled Choose Possibility. I love the title. Now, the book is available for pre-order right now and will be published in August of 2021. I've included a link to pre-order the book in the show notes for this episode, episode 159. So while you can't buy the book today, the good news is that today's conversation will give you a great sneak peek into some of the tremendous wisdom and perspective that Sukender shares in the book. So be sure to go to the show notes for this episode 159. I've also included a risk tool that Sukender talks about in this conversation that she also talks about in her book. 
Friends, this episode is packed with valuable advice and perspective, and I know you're going to love it. I especially love how Sukender talks about one of the ways that she deals with fear. She talks about understanding the difference between FOF and FOMO, or said another way, fear of failure or fear of missing out. She also talks about how to teach yourself to plan for both the failure as well as the success. We trace Sukinder's story from how she grew up to her early career at Merrill Lynch, where she worked in business development, or as she refers to it as biz dev, to her work at Yodely, Amazon, Google, and StubHub, among others. We also talk about her founding and launch of the board list and the challenges associated with getting more women and minorities on corporate boards. There is lots packed into this conversation. Friend, as always, I would love to hear what resonates most with you. Once you have a chance to listen to today's conversation, send me some feedback and please be sure to include your thoughts in a review. Your reviews are a huge help, not just to me, but to others who are looking for thoughtful podcasts like this one. I am so grateful that you're here. And now my conversation with Sukender Singh Cassidy. Sukender, welcome to She Said, She Said. Hey, Laura, thank you for having me. Well, I'm so happy to have you. I think the challenge with a conversation like this one is narrowing it down to the topics that we can fit in this amount of time because you have this amazing, amazing career and background and so many things that we can talk about. But the topic that I want to talk about today is this idea of risk. Mm -hmm. Before we get into that, Let's talk a bit about your career and how you got your start. You have been an executive in Silicon Valley for a number of years, but that's not where you started. Mm -hmm. Take us back to where you first launched and kind of walk us forward. Sure. Well, um, like many people, I probably have a story that from the outside looks well planned and from the inside is a whole other ball game. I graduated from uh, university undergrad in Canada. I'm Canadian by background, and I actually struggled to get my first job. Uh, I We don't need to go into the long story, but suffice to say, it probably took me a year uh, to get my kind of first professional job out of college. And I had set my ambitions very high, which was heading to Wall Street, uh-huh. and uh, made my way there by hook or crook, and that was its own story. And so really started on Wall Street in kind of 1993, ended up at Merrill Lynch in New York, um, and was with Merrill in New York and then in London, and uh, was lucky enough uh, after being in London with Merrill to join uh, B-SkyB, one of the first digital satellite broadcasters in a division of News Corps. Um, in 1994 90, uh, to 1996. And so I had at the start of my career in investment banking and then in media, but was dying, believe it or not, by the time I was 26 or 27 to start a company. I had no idea how, I had no idea what, but sort of was like hankering to be an entrepreneur. And so I quit my job and moved to Silicon Valley uh, in 1997. And unbeknownst to me, turns out that was a pretty good time to head here. And so my career in Silicon Valley started uh, right then, which was really as the internet was starting to sort of move from linear to nonlinear growth. And I ended up joining the startup here, and that's how I made my way. 
Yeah, you you tell a really interesting story uh, that I've I've heard you share, and I believe you share it in your upcoming book, which we're going to talk about. But you had the experience of being described as too aggressive mm-hmm. in one of your early Silicon Valley jobs, and this was actually after you had done a number of years on Wall Street mm-hmm. at at a big investment firm, actually two uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. at both Merrill Lynch and at and at Sky. Um, talk about that experience and what you learned from that. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? It's really seminal in some ways as I, and you know, many of these things end up standing up, standing out in hindsight, even more than at the time you're going through them. I find it ironic that I ended up at, um, two male dominated firms and in industries, both media and financial services, uh, you know, Wall Street in particular that are known to be sort of maybe not as friendly to women, but my aggressiveness and kind of my natural intensity was really welcomed. And I thrived actually in both places. So, and then I've come to Silicon Valley and by and large, I say I've thrived. I wouldn't have stayed here for 25 plus years if I hadn't found my tribe. But in my very first job, uh, which was for um, a startup, on my second day on the job, my boss told me I was scaring the secretaries. And you can imagine, is it 26 or 27 year old, I literally was like, what could I have possibly done? Like, literally, I've gotten a desk. I've walked to the bathroom a couple of times. (laughs) You know, maybe I've sat in a meeting. So, and that signaling to me was actually pretty difficult because it had questioning on like day two, like, what have I done? And, And I would say in the next six months of my first job experience in the Valley, like it went downhill from there. And what I mean by that is a couple of things. At You know, in my two prior jobs, I was, you know, uh, very quickly given more responsibility than my job and trusted with a lot and, you know, progressively promoted, interestingly. And in my, you know, in my first job in the Valley, although I was hired to do biz dev, I was actually given increasingly what I thought were menial tasks. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard and, you know, being given junior tasks as a junior person. But because my experience was the opposite, which was people were trusting me with more every day on the job, right. in a job where I was supposed to be doing BD, but I was being given things like doing marketing collateral, I didn't understand it. Um, I saw a male colleague who was, you know, significantly senior to me, probably 10 or more years of work experience than me, be very volatile on the job and very aggressive and lose his temper. And yet my boss seemed to tolerate that behavior and coddle that person. And yet I was being told or signaled to that I was somehow being aggressive by just showing up at work. And I, and I didn't really understand what was going on. And I do recall you know, it's like, it's like I said, I have this vivid memory of like watching that, feeling increasingly unsure about myself. Um, I mean, I cried a lot at work. <laughs> and I think one day we, you know, my boss and I were walking out at the same time out of work to the parking lot. And somehow we got into this discussion about my unhappiness. And he said to me, well, Sukinder, you're like the rookie on the football team, you know, that needs to be coached. And I'm like, uh, I said, quite respectfully, uh, I've never been told I need to be coached. Nobody has ever told me that I need to be stewarded somehow. And this is not the feedback I've ever gotten before. Um, and the situation continued. And I think somewhere around month six, somebody came in ironically to do uh, sexual discrimination and harassment tra- training. This is like 1997. And I remember literally asking for a private session with that person and walking into the woman who was doing the training and saying, you know, this is my experience. Like, am I being discriminated against? And she really wouldn't give me a straight answer. And, and to be honest, I, I, I'm not here to accuse that person of, of 
being malicious or anything towards me. But what was very clear is like how I expected to be treated on the job and how my boss, you know, thought of me were at odds. And so I basically started looking for another job. I really thought I didn't belong in the Valley. I was questioning whether I was even suited to biz dev and I thought about leaving. And luckily for me, I took a recruiter call for a company called Jungly. I had very little interest in the business, but the first time I met the founders, they seemed to welcome who I was. And I loved how smart they were and how straightforward. And I switched jobs. And uh, on day two of the job, uh, they asked me to pick up a whole set of responsibility that Jungly needed done in a new business vertical they were entering, which was Mm e-commerce. And I had the exact opposite experience and was back to sort of being trusted and told to run, not walk. And given like no structure, but being told to figure it out. And that totally suited me. And I thrived. Yeah, there's so many things that strike me about your your story because you you can jump to the point of saying, okay, was it was I being discriminated against, or was it sort of code for feedback that the boss was not capable or comfortable giving? And I, I don't know about you, but I've had this experience so many times where I would have a female colleague or a junior staffer and and have maybe a male counterpart say, well, we can't promote her because she can't take feedback. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's an interesting, it's an interesting anecdote about sort of how to how to think about this idea of getting feedback and mm-hmm. what to do when you get it. In that case, you sounds like you didn't really get feedback at all. No, I didn't. And, and to be honest, like, look, I, I'm a grown up. I have to give feedback all the time. By the way, as an executive and a CEO, do you know how much feedback I've had to receive? So it's not like I think I am perfect. To me, the signaling on day two of the job where there are very few data points, right? something about me is too aggressive. I was like, I, I would have preferred something specific. But to be honest, that was a pretty quick data point. Could, there couldn't have been that much data. And right. then you're right, to your point, if there was data coming in, I think sitting down and saying like, hey, here are the data points. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would have taken some away the mis- mystery about all of this, right? Um, so yeah, there's a lesson to be learned. This is why, you know, I, I don't use words like, you know, discrimination lightly. I do believe I was given a message about my perceived aggressiveness at a point where there couldn't have been that many data points about my work. It was date. And unfortunately, or fortunately, that set the tone for the relationship I had with my boss and I, me wary, paranoid, somewhat insecure, somewhat defensive, you know, him probably feeling like I, you know, I don't know, also wasn't fitting in. Yeah. Just never got to that point of candid, constructive feedback. Right. Given and received in a safe environment. We didn't. Was it hard for you to get over the experience? I mean, sometimes when you have a setback like that and there's not, you don't always have clear answers or why is it I'm not meshing with this person or, you know, sometimes it can really do a number on your confidence. Did you find that that was the case or were you able to just say, you know what, this is just the wrong fit for me and move on? Well, you know, it's interesting. First of all, when we're younger and and even now, I think there is... um, you know, when you don't have that many data points, any data point risks shaking your confidence. I mean, right. my confidence was shaken right out of college when I couldn't get the job I wanted. And again, up until that point, you know, I thrived in school. Lots of people were telling me I was, you know, like many, you know, I was like a, a student, all of those good things. So I think it's always easier when you have a number of data points that are positive to take a negative 
take it in stride and move on. And luckily for me, I had three years of work experience. Three years doesn't sound like that many, but three in the context of six months of a bad experience, but three plus years of a good one. And then, you know, my very next job experience being so positive, I relatively speaking took it in stride. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that doesn't mean you ignore difficult feedback, not at all. But if you said like, what's your ability to bounce back or recover from feedback? I think it's about all the data points you have and putting it in context. And obviously, when we have, you know, not enough data points, it's very easy to over-index or over-rotate on one or two. As you have more, you definitely just have, as I said, you have, you know, more data in which to consider any single piece of feedback. Yeah. So clearly, you have put this experience into context. You've utilized it. You've gone on to amazing jobs. Because I want to talk about risk-taking in particular, I'm curious about, and all of the risks that you've taken over the course of your career, I'd love for you to talk a bit about how you grew up. Were your parents entrepreneurs? Did they instill this idea in you? Did that have anything to do with sort of the path that you think you have taken? Uh, Yes, indeed, it did. But of course, this comes to my point of view on risk, which maybe isn't normal. My parents were, so let's just back up. My parents were both doctors. They ran a medical practice together, first in Africa and then in Canada, where they immigrated to when I was two. And let's just agree, the medical profession is not a high risk profession in terms of you go to school, you have a very known path, that known path gets you a job, you know, there's stability in your job. So my parents valued stability a lot, right? So you say, well, what is risk taking about that? But then you would go one step deeper and say, my father loved running a small business as much as he loved being a doctor. So he really, you know, he really loved being an entrepreneur. And, you know, like, that's not high stakes poker entrepreneurship, right? That's like, I'm going to open a small business and the high stakes entrepreneurship in that might be like, I'm going to buy a building, which he did, because I dream of one day having a walk-in clinic. You know, that's that was high risk. You know, he tried branding his clinic 10 years before there was ever the notion of a walk-in clinic. So I just saw every day small and big acts of possibility. And that's what I say to people like risk taking doesn't always have to be big, right? It's about an attitude towards the things you try in order to get feedback and a response and then make the next move. And so from that context, I consider my father a risk taker. And then of course, I always say to people, my parents took one big risk. They, you know, they left their entire livelihoods and in fact, financial stability behind in Africa and, you know, and moved to Canada in their late forties and started over, you know, residency and all. And so certainly they took one big risk with their lives, which was starting over, but one would not characterize my, my growing up in any way as sort of risky, you know? And so I will say to people, think about what risk is. And if you want to reframe, reframe risk, if it's small and big acts of possibility, I feel like I grew up in a house that was very risk tolerant because my father was always willing to take small and big moves as an entrepreneur to learn, to grow, sometimes to experiment he kind of shrugged off things that didn't work out as like learning. Like there was just no badness in taking something. So that's one perspective. The other perspective, and I think we should all be super clear on this. I'm very clear on this in my life. To have um, many choices available to you, you know, and to be raised in an environment where it's safe to take risk is also a privilege. Like, make no mistake, I grew up as a, you know, middle class, my parents were savers, I never struggled to put food on the table, I don't have a story like that. And I am very aware that choice and possibility is also itself a privilege. So 
I consider myself a risk taker because I have a view of possibility that was shaped by my father as an entrepreneur, yet I'm very aware that even possibility is a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned possibility, which is such an amazing word. Mm -hmm. And it is part of the title of your new book, which will Mm -hmm. be coming out later this summer in August. We will include a pre-order link in the show notes for this episode so that folks can go ahead and order that because it's amazing. I've read excerpts of it. It's terrific. You talk about in that book, um, a number of things, but one in particular is this idea of the myth of a single choice. What do you mean by that? You know, it's so interesting. Like, I think that one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I believe that risk needs to be reframed because most of the risks we take are for possibility, right? Like right. So the book is called Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. Um, but I think just to back up, I believe that there are a lot of myths around risk-taking that get perpetuated. And this myth of the single choice is this idea that all of us have, I had it growing up too, that like one single choice will make or break you. You know, people struggle, as you and I both know, to make the perfect decision. I mean, how many, do I do this or do I do that? And it's all on this thesis that you choose once. And if you choose one once rightly, you're on your way to glory. And if you choose once wrongly, like abject failure is sitting dead in front of you, right? And so people are like, in some ways, paralyzed to take action when they believe in this myth of the single choice. Like, which one? It's a make or break decision. And we've been trained to think about make or break single decisions. And what I find ironic is that in my own career, I have not experienced that success comes from a single choice. Success comes from um, a series of choices and an iterative view towards you know, each next possibility to unlock, let's say, a big reward. And that big reward may or may not be what you originally imagined. But I am quite sure that it is not a single choice that gets us there. And this myth of this, like the single choice, what I call the hero's journey, which is so celebrated, right? Um, Maybe in hindsight, you can point to the one choice among 50 that was more seminal, but mostly reward comes from a series of choices and you have to be prepared to keep choosing. And that is completely contrary to this idea of the single choice. Yeah. Is there a gender component to this that you've noticed either in the women that you've worked alongside and or coached or in your own career? Do you think it can be in some respects more difficult for women to take those risks? Or maybe, I mean, I don't know if it's socialization or or just sort of the way that we're wired, but it strikes me that we might be more inclined um, as a general rule, again, not really generalizing here, but we might be inclined to be a bit more cautious about risk. Well, it's interesting that you say this. There are a a couple of things. First of all, there is a lot of research that points to the differences between men and women's risk-taking capabilities. You could just Google gender and risk and you'll find a ton of research on this topic. It's it's not capability necessarily, it's tolerance, right? Uh, Well, uh, let's put it this way. It's a multifaceted paradigm. So I'll point to and I'm digging into it even more deeply myself, particularly as I've written this book. But here are a couple of things that are true. First of all, there are gender differences in how people view risk. There is also very clearly because there's a perception perception that women take less risk, there's a self-fulfilling bias. It, like the even the perception that women are less risk tolerant, in fact, leads to behavior that's you know of of lower risk taking. So be aware that even this myth perpetuates then you know uh, a bias in women's like I don't know 
desire to take risk, you know, this is one of the problems with any, you know, with any, um, with any bias that is in the media or so on, it then, it it then sort of creates uh, a negative virtuous cycle. So that's true. Interestingly, one fun thing everybody can do right now that uh, I think is my own sort of take on this, um, we put together, uh, you know, for the book, but just for people to help understand themselves, a quiz that you can take a, at the site. It's called, you know, it's, uh, if you go to www.choosepossibility.com, there's a risk-taking quiz. And we have these four different archetypes of, you know, of what we call natural risk-taking styles. Um, and they run from what we call, uh, which I find pretty fun, the change seeker, somebody, you know, who's moving all the time, the calculator, somebody who really thinks about, you know, uh, very, like, actively, you know, risk take, risk taking they can do and quite tries to come to calculated decisions. We talk about the contemplator, people who are like very thoughtful and balanced and, you know, like always can see the pros and cons, but come sometimes struggle with making a decision. And what we call the critic, somebody who sees by nature the downside of any situation first, more easily. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we have the survey is still collecting results, but we certainly put it out to a panel of men and women. And it is, in fact, true, even in our own kind of very informal survey that women over index uh, versus men on uh, more likely to uh, be critical um, and uh, and certainly more likely to be contemplators. So we're seeing in our own data uh, differences between men and women, though I will say, by and large, on balance, these differences are not nearly as extreme as people think. So if you looked at the entire population and said, you know, while women may be X percent more likely than men to be critical, these differences are not like four times more likely. I mean, by and large, the populations look very similar. It's just that when you look at where they index, there's certainly, it's certainly true that women index differently. But here's what I would say. I do not believe there is any difference in women's level of ambition. And I think this is very important, right? This idea that women are not ambitious or what have you, I, you know, I think that this gets interwound with risk. And my own experience leading women um, and teams of men and women, I've led all women teams, I've led all male teams, I've led balanced teams, which of course is all of our preferences. Um, I, I never treat nor have seen in the women leaders I have worked with any lack of ambition or any less ambition than their male counterparts. Um, so that also plays into this in a, in a, in not necessarily a helpful way. So do I see differences? Yes. If you want to know for yourself, go take the quiz and figure out what you are. And certainly, you know, as we, uh, you know, get more larger and larger sample sizes, I will be putting out some of the results, but we are already seeing some differences. That's amazing. That's amazing. I will include a link in addition to the book. Yeah, I will include a link to the quiz as well, because I think our audience would be really, really interested in that. I'll Let's talk about you are, Laura. You can tell me. I'm sorry. Once you've taken the quiz, I'll be curious to see what you are. It's like, I will let you know. Okay. <laughs> I can probably guess, but <laughs> um, let's talk a bit about uh, some action steps that folks can take to increase their risk-taking potential, little things that we can do. You, you talked a moment ago about the importance of, of small things, and that's true in so many aspects of life. But talk about what a person can do if she's having trouble, maybe getting comfortable taking those risks. Sure. So, so look, I think that, um, first of all, I think you have to expand the opportunities to take risks. So I say to people, like, there are four reasons to take risk. You're probably only thinking about one of four, maybe two. Um, number one, uh, you can take risk to discover. 
like literally just to discover what opportunities may exist. Number two, you can take risk to learn. You literally, let's say you move from, you know, one job to something that is, seems like a lateral move. Likely you're doing it because you want to learn a new skill set, right? You can take a risk to, uh, to achieve an outsized ambition. That is the kind of risk that's celebrated in the world. Or by the time we hear the story, right, about the hero, it's that, it's that one that the people are talking about. Like, look, you know, Elon Musk wanted to send people to space. Like that's what we hear about, right? Right. Um, and then the fourth risk that people take is often to avoid harm. Like, you know, you're in a precarious situation. And sometimes, I mean, look at COVID. Many people had to make very, you know, on balance, take a risky decision to avoid, you know, the harm, potential harm of COVID or the pandemic, right, in their businesses, in their lives. So they actually acted quickly and agilely. But you have to expand your thoughts and say, if you want if you want to take more risk, first of all, find opportunities to take risk. And so bucket all of those things and think of like, what is like if I want to take a risk today to learn, to discover, to make a small step towards a big ambition or even to avoid a harm? What, what could I do? So I think mm-hmm. first and foremost, you have to find reasons to take risk. Uh, number two, I always say to people like early and often. And you say, well, why would you take risk early enough? And I'm like, every little time you take risk, it's like a practice, right? You can say like, hey, if I take a little risk about something I don't really particularly care about, I am training myself for the day I have to make a decision that like where the odds are or the stakes are much higher. And so it's so much easier to take risk when we're in safe environments, yet people don't do it. It's so much easier to take risk when there's so when there's little downside, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it is a practice. It is a muscle. Um, and, and I think that, um, I, I keep saying to people, look at the checklist, figure out ways to take risk in your daily life. Even if a risk is something like, as we talked about, um, something's bothering you speaking up, you're in a meeting, you see an opportunity, you know, say something, um, I'm making it up. You think you might want to change your job. Like even, you know, even getting on the web and doing a Google search today about a, a, uh, about an occupation you're curious about. Isn't that the tiniest micro risk you could take without committing yourself to any action? Like, and the reality is the more risks you take, the more you see the feedback loop of like what happens after. Oh, you know, you discovered something. You you get these micro rewards or micro learnings. And um, the biggest advice I give people is like, what is stopping you from taking a little risk today? Because if you want to become an adept risk taker, like anything, it's a muscle. It is a muscle. And so like it gets better with practice. I love that. Talk about the connection between all of that and risk taking related to confidence. Is it kind of the same thing? Confidence is so embedded and sort of intertwined in that or is confidence something different? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a really uh, great question. Well, first of all, I would say Imagine if I said to you, the reward for risk is not reward. And what I mean by that, it's not the reason you originally took the risk. Because most people think like, I'm taking a risk for this very objective reward, you know, increased financial wealth. I want to be, uh, you know, I don't know, I want to be a CEO, what have you. Now, imagine that the reward for risk taking that is 100% true is agility, right? So what happens when you become agile? Whether you say, succeed or you fail, Agility breeds confidence because you sort of know that given any situation, if you can see the results and make the next choice, I bet you become more confident. And so I think the relationship between I actually think that confidence is almost the um, the like, I don't know what's the best. It's, it's almost the most predictable right. <laughs> uh, reward for risk taking. Right. So mm-hmm. ironic is that like how many people want to be confident if I said to you, like, hey, if you want the like fail safe 
reward for risk-taking? What if I told you it's not the reward you imagined? It's agility and confidence. Because the minute you sort of make multiple moves and whether they work out or don't, you make the choice after, your agility grows and your confidence that you can pretty much deal with any situation and recover also increases. And imagine the freedom that that gives you. Like it's it's just incredibly freeing, right? To know that um, in any given choice, there are still choices to be made afterward depending on the results, including failure. And if you feel like once you've been through that cycle a number of times, your confidence will increase because your agility, your agility increases first and the byproduct is confidence. Yeah, yeah. One of the ways in which you talk about weighing whether to take a risk is this sort of the difference between what you call FOF and FOMO, (laughs) which is fear of failure versus fear of missing out, which I thought was an interesting way to think about this dynamic. And this is how you have processed Mm -hmm. this idea of how to take a risk. Talk a little bit about that and how it how it has related to your own experiences. Sure. Well, it's so funny. It's um, so I, I always say to people like we think that when we're taking a risk, we have one fear. We have two fears, and they're what and they're what I call part of a universal risk taking equation. Uh, fear uh, FOMO is what we all know. Fear of missing out. Whenever we're thinking about a new opportunity, it's because we have FOMO, right? We're like, oh, I, I, if I don't do this, if I don't act, I'm going to miss out on something really positive potentially. Right. So that's the that, but it's still a fear, right? And then the other fear that everybody knows I have it too is fear of failure. And so I say to people in the kind of universal risk-taking equation, when your FOMO outweighs your fear of failure, you act. And when your fear of failure is greater than your FOMO, you don't act. And so uh, a person's natural, like the natural universal wisdom out there is grow your FOMO, grow your FOMO. Like just keep visualizing the most positive things that can happen, right? But think about what happens when you only visualize the positive and it fails to transpire on your first choice. You almost are in that like myth of a single choice. Oh my God, I took this big risk and it didn't work out. So I think when you just visualize the positive, do you know what I mean? Visualize, visualize, visualize. And your very first move doesn't turn out the way you want. I'm not really sure that helps you keep acting. And so people always assume that I'm like really good at imagining the positive. And don't get me wrong, like I can get myself excited about pretty much anything. But for any control-oriented person, which I am as well, you know, I far, I spend as much time stressing, if not more, about what's going to go wrong. And my fear of failure is pretty high. So what I've really learned to do is focus much more on the downside of what can go wrong. Because if I'm pleasantly res- surprised at the upside, there'll be many, many more choices to be made. What I mostly try and do, believe it or not, is confront my fears in any choice and think through what would I do if the thing I want is, you know, first doesn't work. If the first move doesn't work, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. You know, if um, in a biz dev contract, when I mean, I grew up doing sales in biz dev, I'm always, I, you know, as you know, most contracts are built on only solving for the negative state. Like that's mm-hmm. every contract doesn't say if this happens, then this happens. I mean, deals only get done because somebody is mapping out every potential worst outcome of contract and putting in writing what happens next. And so I, I think about two fears in my own risk taking equation. And I personally, um, it's like it's very easy to spend all your time thinking about FOMO. But in my mind, if you can really think through what happens in the failure state and imagine your next choices, you'll reduce your fear of failure which in some ways I, you know, I find far more productive. Yeah. You actually talk about it in the context of almost planning for it. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about whether you have a plan for your career or whether you just set goals or benchmarks. But I love the idea of 
planning for things not working out the way that you plan for them to and what you're going to do when that happens. Yeah, let's put it this way. My own energy is my FOMO plan is what I call a whiteboard plan. It's like a rough guide on the upside. I first for sure have a vision for what I want to achieve. And I would never suggest you don't have a vision for the positive. I mean, that's our, all of our North Star, right? Like, and it's what keeps you motivated. But my, I will say to the upside, I plan roughly. To the downside, I plan in detail, which is maybe the opposite of most people. Like when as a CEO, as I receive plans from others, oh my gosh, the amount of detail to the positive is incredible. It's like as if people can predict to the nth degree in their plan, what's going to happen in this next quarter. And then their plan to the downside or their plan for like, you know, other things they're going to experiment with is just not there. It's like as if everything they're going to do is going to work out exactly as they want. So they plan out all the steps to the upside. And I'm like, and I see very few plans which are like, hey, you know, I'm going to take this first move. And then depending on the outcome, you know, here are the next things that could happen. It's mostly like yeah. all, every single one of my choices is going to go right. So just like watch as, as I map the, the 15 positive choices. And I'm like, that's a very detailed plan to the upside. I'm like, uh, I'm not sure my plan's going to go the way I think it is on move one. So I'm not going to spend that much energy on all the great things that can happen. I'm just going to roughly plan for the upside. And really, uh, I want to know what I'm going to do when the when the first move doesn't work out the way I think it's going to. How, how much did your early career experience in investment banking and in business development, as you've talked about a couple yeah. of times, how much of that really informed the way that you think about planning for the downside? Because what, what, what I think is so important here is it's not, you're not using the planning for the downside as an excuse not to take the risk. Yeah. You're, you're actually using it as a plan for here's what I will do when it goes wrong. Yeah, I'm actually using it to gain confidence to take the risk, yeah. which is a really weird thing, right? But It's great though. I love it. Um, yeah. I don't know if investment banking trained me for it, to be honest. I mean, that probably just trained me in like hard work and diligence, because there's a very known path that you have to do as an analyst to be successful, right? Um, I think that I, I think that you are right, though, you know, my first jobs were in sales, my first job was in business development, this idea of forecasting for multiple cases, I think is very much in the nature of sales and business development. In the case of sales, it's like, you're planning that most times the sales call doesn't work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like this idea that you call one person and one person says yes, like that is the opposite of great sales, right? You have to plan for 99 people to say no. And so you have to build a pipeline for a hundred. So that's true. Like I think sales is very good training and planning for the negative state. That's true. And then biz dev, if you just look at it, the contract, the, all the contract work, all of it is about being diligent to the downside, you know, so that you know. And so I'm pretty sure that sales and business development taught me to, um, just manage the probabilities of the downside. And even if they're low accounting for them and being, you know, and just taking that into account in your action plan. Yeah, to your point though, it doesn't mean you don't act. You, you, you're sort of visualizing failure in order to act, <laughs> which right. may be counterintuitive to people. Yeah. Yeah. Another element of all of this too, I think is how, and we talk about this on this podcast quite a bit, is this idea of, we've all been told, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And, and that sounds like an interesting concept, but I think if we're, when we're not specific about it, people don't always know what that means. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to dig into this idea of what, how you think about that 
the role maybe that your mindset plays Mm -hmm. as it relates to this idea of discomfort. Just talk about how you've thought about this idea of getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah, look, I think it it comes back to that point I made about finding little reasons to take risk, right? One can agree that if you want to be comfortable, it's very easy to like not look for reasons to take risk. Like, that's true. Like, why wake up tomorrow (laughs) and say, I'm going to look for little reasons to try something different. Um, So I think this, I think more specifically, this idea of what discomfort means, it means when you don't need to do something, choosing to do it. Does that make sense when you could say like, no, I don't need to do this today. So, I mean, discomfort isn't anything from us each trying to like, you know, lose our next five pounds or like, you know, start a keto diet today versus a month from now, or in speaking up in a meeting. As I said, it's sort of, I, I think of discomfort as like, I could not reach for the next state of possibility and I'm going to make myself do that, you know, because I know it's good for me, but you, as you said, and by the way, there are many days that I stay in the status quo, like make no mistake, like, or I just am choosing to be comfortable today. But that's also because as a CEO of a tech company or a growth startup, it's because I live many, many, many days in perpetual discomfort, just given how things change. So then I'm quite happy to swing to comfort on my weekends and be like, you know, I am not going to do this today. I am, you know, I'm going to binge watch or what have you. But that's because by its very nature, you know, being a tech startup CEO or, you know, any kind of in any disruptive technology play, your constant state is like, you know, grow or go, right? There's like, if you don't, if you don't move to the next possibility, you could be obsolete. And so, um, so I'm very binary on this. I live, I live that every day as, as a career. Yeah. Maybe let's talk about your most recent career experience. You were the CEO of StubHub up until very recently, and you successfully sold the company. But I would love for you to talk about what the experience was like in COVID. I can only imagine how terrifying it would be to be running a you know live venue ticket company at a point in which all live venues are closed for the foreseeable future. Maybe talk about your experience and how this played out for you. Sure. And I think this comes to the point of sort of both being a calculated risk taker and understanding that you can be as calculated as you want and you still need to, you're still going to encounter risks you didn't foresee. So I was very calculated in the job, in in taking the job to run StubHub. I had been an entrepreneur for seven years. I'd been at Google and kind of reached a very senior executive level. And I left to start my second and third companies, Joyous and the board list. And, um, and I had been seven years as an entrepreneur and I was really craving getting back to scale and running and building a service that impacted millions of people. And I got the opportunity to run StubHub as a division of eBay, wholly owned subsidiary. And although it was not a standalone company, the job was big. I loved the service. I loved the idea of giving people joy and entertainment. And I was like, Hey, this brings me back to, you know, uh, large scale, you know, large scale business. And so I joined, uh, I joined StubHub as its president, um, which is effectively its CEO, and I was reporting to the CEO of eBay. Um, and although it was not my ideal to work for a large corporate, like, again, that was the way I was going to get to run something big again. And so I was very calculated. I measured I thought about the potential for my career. I was like, this is a really good move. Like, it, it opens up many more possibilities if I do a good job, you know, all those things. And in fact, you know, uh, I always say to people, when I, when, I, when I took the job at StubHub, I had a known risk which was StubHub was a subsidiary and I would have loved to see it, you know, become independent. I really believe that the ticket industry needed to consolidate. 
but like it was owned by eBay. So it wasn't clear that that was going to happen or not. But one could have predicted that there was a case for StubHub to be sold or bought. And in fact, within a year of my joining the company, the board uh, pressured eBay to sell StubHub, you know, and mm-hmm. because it was a non-core asset. So I could have right. predicted that risk. I took that risk. I knew it was a risk to my job. I was like, look, I could be a winner or loser if the company gets sold or bought. I'd like to like lead that either way. And I knew that, that that's what I call known volatility, Right calculate it, what have you. Okay. So we sell the company successfully. StubHub's a great brand. We sell the company for $4 billion, uh, record sum on February 13th. On March 13th, uh, effectively 95% of sports and entertainment shuts down uh, across the United States. And I'm, you know, up until that point, I'm like, hey, I'm going to transition this to the new owner. You know, I'll be out of a job as a CEO, but, you know, because a new owner will want to run the company. But I, you know, I, I created the outcome I wanted. I created shareholder value. You know, I believe this is strategically what needs to happen for the industry. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself, right? And then COVID hits and I'm still the CEO. Like no transition has happened yet. Uh, and within a week, uh, we had what I would call, it's called a, in research, a coconut event, the kind of volatility you could never predict, where, you know, uh, like it's called a coconut because it's uh, it's the equivalent of a coconut falling on your head and killing you. <laughs> and uh, And you have to, you know, we have to go from sort of not worrying about like next year's problem to literally worrying about how we're going to survive. Because at this point, we're no longer owned by eBay. We're owned by another private company, which means you don't have this like gigantic balance sheet. You know, you have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of tickets that have been sold for events that now all cancel within effectively a week. We had 20,000 events reschedule or cancel in the span of like days. Uh, And so, you know. And what was the employee base? I mean, just generally speaking, we talk about StubHub is, you know, in the time I managed it, having about 2000 employees, uh, including contractors. So large employee base, multi-billion dollar business, you know, StubHub annually runs about $4 billion plus in ticket volume of tickets sold. Um, So what was it like? It was, um, it was scary. It was um, stressful. (laughs) Um, It was in hindsight, I'm exceptionally proud of the StubHub team because you took a company where they hadn't had to think about that, right? It wasn't like it was a company of startup people. It was a company that for 10 years had enjoyed eBay's ownership and continual growth and had to literally pivot into how do we go from managing annual numbers to managing like daily and weekly cash burn. I mean, it is like, and you know, thousands of angry customers and suppliers who themselves might go out of business and are holding on to your money. I mean, uh, so at the time, incredibly stressful. We had to pivot incredibly quickly. I am very thankful for all the risk taking I've done in my career. And then also being an entrepreneur and knowing that, you know, you have to manage cash as an entrepreneur. Um, And I'm exceptionally proud of the team at StubHub and the agility they showed under dire pressure to make sure that we not only survived, but, you know, uh, we're going to be in it for the long haul. And I'm, you know, obviously I no longer run the company, but I'm really proud to see StubHub now as the pandemic allows, you know, we allows for the reopening and that the company is standing and will thrive again. And um, yeah, but really proud of the team. I mean, that's an incredible story. How, How much did that experience inspire you to write Choose Possibility? Were you already working on the book or was that kind of a catalyst? Interestingly and ironically, I wanted to write a book on taking risk for probably 10 years. And uh, I sold the rights to the book 
um, you know, after we had sold StubHub, but the transaction hadn't closed. So interestingly, I had already decided that writing this book would be my post StubHub project. And I had promised a publisher that I would write the book as soon as I had transitioned the company with no idea that COVID was coming. So obviously in hindsight, COVID, you know, COVID is in the book and, you know, it's certainly, I think it's ironic that we, uh, uh, that I went through this experience and it certainly informed and shaped the writing of the book, but the book never even imagined, you know, uh, the kind of risk taking we've all had to do in COVID. How, so you, but you were writing the book. I mean, you ultimately sat down to write the book. I sat down to write the book on June 1st. Uh, June, I think I left StubHub June 1st, June 2nd, I started writing. Um, and so I was at home in the midst of a pandemic and I wrote all the book through the pandemic. So it was informed by the pandemic, but the idea was never sold as a pandemic idea. It was sold, it was sold pre-pandemic and, you know, as just a sort of risk-taking is something that everybody needs to learn how to do if you think about sort of what's coming uh, in the next decade of work. But uh, COVID has obviously even reshaped people's thinking about risk pretty remarkably. Yeah, I suspect it was probably a therapeutic experience to some degree. It was, it was. And it certainly informs, you know, a lot of what's in the book, but but not the thesis of the book. If anything, I think yeah. the pandemic will force and has forced people to rethink their ideas about risk overall. And I, I always say to people, you know, if you think there's no reason to learn how to take risk, the pandemic is a is the ultimate coconut event that tells us all that risk will happen to you whether or not you choose to embrace it. Yeah, yeah. I want to pivot and talk about, I mean, I've got, I got so much on my, on my list. This could be a three-part or four-part conversation. I want to pivot though and talk about the board list because I know that is something that you are very proud of. Um, I want you to talk about what that is and why you created it and maybe a little bit about how it's evolved because it's a bit different than it was when you launched it. So sure. what is the board list? Sure. The board list is a, uh, it's a tech platform. It's a talent marketplace, like, you know, other talent marketplaces online, but one where diverse leaders are discovered for board opportunity and uh, executive opportunity, you know, in the near future. And so the board list was actually, I mean, again, not to tie everything back to risk, but to be clear, the board list was built as a side hustle. I was running, I was running my full-time company, a company called Joyous, that was an early pioneer in video commerce. And I was watching the narrative on women in tech, it was circa 2015, mm -hmm. fairly on the one hand depressed that all the narratives were negative. And as we talked about, like, for 25 years, I've thrived. I had a bad experience that we talked about. I've had a couple of other bad experiences. But overall, I've really found a lot of possibility in my career in the Valley. But realizing that that narrative was also true. I, I mean, I know women uh, who've had horror stories far worse than mine and fundraising and other things. And so I was like just frustrated with the duality of like, hey, this can be a great place. It can also be a place where women don't find their potential. And I think wanting to do something about it you know, I really want to see tech companies embrace this idea of women at the top and change their own cultures by starting at the boardroom. And I felt like that was complete white space in the tech industry as they talked about all the ways in which, you know, women should participate more. Um, and so during my day job, I was running a, you know, full-time startup in commerce and, uh, and I, I don't know, got 30, 40 other entrepreneurs and executives in the Valley to submit names to me of the top women they would love uh, to have on a board. And I set up a site called The Board List and we aggregated the names and we published them. And that was the start of The Board List. And so I really didn't have any what we would call commercial ambitions, but I was fairly sure that there was a 
tech solution to this problem of like, where are all the women, you know, this pipeline myth that they're not enough women to be in leadership positions or on boards. And so the board list started as a side hustle. I wasn't really clear on its ambition. And as I always say to people, I mean, this is the nature of risk, right? It was a little risk. I really didn't imagine some outsized commercial reward, but I knew there was something there. And in fact, turns out that 2015 is a pretty good time to think about, you know, how to help solve problems of diversity <laughs> uh, in hindsight. But again, right. I knew that, right? Like, I didn't know that. I just knew I was frustrated with the narrative. Um, and so the board list today, it's a platform that we bootstrapped. It's got about 20,000 uh, leaders on the platform, organically grown. It's not just women, but people of color as well. Um, we've ha- helped over 2,000 boards look for uh, diverse candidates in our four and a half, five-year history. We just bootstrapped it to a seed round, and we just raised $2 million for the company this fall. And of course, the tailwinds behind diversity are large, you know, meaning this idea that we're going to need diverse talent for any company to thrive and perform better is not going away. It's right. getting bigger. And um, there've been societal, there's been societal pressure behind that, but also just commercial pressure as, you know, every company gets disrupted in its field. Um, and so the board list has evolved and grown. Mission is exactly the same. I'm proud of what it represents. I think we still have a long way to go. So make no mistake, like I'm the founder and chairman and there's so much work and so much I want to see us build on the platform. So it's not like I'm so proud of us and patting us on the back in that regard. I just love platforms that provide people opportunity. And so, yes, am I happy that we that we started one and that it's made its mark and that people refer to the board list as a place you can go and we're doing our small part uh, to accelerate board diversity? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love for you to talk a bit about um, maybe advice for our listeners who are, as you know, our audience is largely women. Um, I think many people are, many women are looking for opportunities to serve on boards, but may have a non-traditional resume. I mean, that's been my experience. I sit on two boards as somebody who's a fairly non-traditional board candidate Mm -hmm. because I saw an opportunity or was able to leverage an opportunity or a need that I thought existed and say, well, I can't do what you're hiring for, but I could do this. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know and get your advice for our audience for ways that they can leverage opportunities, skills that they have, Mm -hmm. um, that they can pitch to a potential CEO and a board that maybe makes them more viable or marketable in that regard. Sure. Well, I think the way I always tell someone to start because people ask me an adjacent question often as well, do am I ready for a board? Mm-hmm. And I think the way to think about what you can pitch is I will say to be in a boardroom, you need to be a thought leader on something. And you need to be a thought leader in an area that is relevant to the CEO whose board you want to join. So I think the first place to start is to like write down the things that you are a thought leader of. Write down like what is your value proposition for a board? What is not like the list of competencies, I mean the two or three things at which you excel you know, where you have deep experience and, as I said, and I will say thought leadership. So you could have three amazing skills, but you also need to say, okay, well, how do those amazing skills translate into the things I'm a thought leader about? Am I a thought leader about how to build large-scale operations? Am I a thought leader about AI? Am I a thought leader on social media, you know, strategy? On what are you a thought leader? And I think you have to frame your value proposition to the boards you might want to serve on in and around that. And then I think you kind of have to build that list and then you have to go seek opportunity. And I will say to people like, you know, finding a board is a multifaceted journey. I never say to somebody, Oh, just join the board list. I mean, it's so fragmented there, you know, and the, and boards are opaque. 
only if right. you never come through a search firm. Obviously, the board list is one of the largest aggregators of board demand, but we're still, you know, but we're still a fraction, right? So mm-hmm. people are working their own networks for boards. They're going to recruiting firms. They're coming to platforms like ours. These are not listed searches. They can be months or years. You know, like people don't even often set timeframes for joining, having people join their board unless they're going public or something. So it's just a very circuitous and winding process. And as a result, you have to put feelers out everywhere. But I say put feelers out everywhere, but be, but be very succinct about your value proposition. Yeah, that's really great advice. Um, there's a topic that comes up on this podcast, and I get a lot of feedback uh, from my audience who wants to hear more about this topic. And it's on this notion of work-life balance. And I kind of hate the idea of balance because it's just, I mean, it's more of, to me, it's always been a matter of prioritization. But you tell a very interesting story, and I'm not sure whether you include it in the book, but I've heard you tell the story about acquiring career capital and how that can be incredibly important. Maybe tell that story and the experience that you had at Google. Sure, sure. So first of all, of course, I, like you, um, I, I think when people think about this mythical day where you wake up and you exercise perfectly and, you know, you know, you, you, you get your kids fed breakfast and, you know, you get them off to school in a loving manner and then you make it to work on time and have a highly productive day and get home in time to make dinner, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I've never believed in that version of balance, though I will say COVID has created some semblance of being able to take some time back from commuting and so on. So maybe my COVID life has been actually a little bit more balanced than my commuting life. (laughs) But but that aside, like you, I believe balance is cyclical. You'll go through periods where something gets prioritized over something else. And you you hope over the course of your career, you've achieved some level of balance. But on any given day, I don't believe in that balance is achievable. Some 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 mouth is always, you know, hungrier than the other mouth that you have to feed. <laughs> Someone always gets like stuck with the rind of the deal, right, on any given day. Um, so that's what I generally believe. Specifically, I think the point you're making is um, I always say to people, whatever you're trying to balance, however you're trying to balance it between work and home is a negotiation. This idea that you don't need to negotiate for whatever trade-off you're trying to make, I think is absurd. My marriage is a negotiation. I say that in the most loving way, but I've had to negotiate with my husband for the things I want to do in my career and how to make that possible. And I've negotiated at work for the things I need for my life. But being able to do that has started with first and foremost, building career capital. Like I've never walked into the, I've negotiated hard at work for things I need. And I'll give the example you're you're talking about, but I've never walked in entitled. I have accumulated career capital knowing that I am creating a lot of value and conscious that I want to create value for the companies I'm a part of. I want to be giving and feel like they, I want them to feel like they are getting the most of me, right? Like they are getting more than they bargained for when they hired me. But I'm certainly going to take that capital when it's necessary in order to ask for what I need in my home life. And I think I was, um, the specific example you're referring to is I was at Google, I was 30 mid-30s. I had been promoted to run Asia, Pacific, and Latin America, but I was only a year into my marriage and really dying to have my first child. And I became pregnant and I was like, how do I make this work? How do I not give up my job in order to, you know, but also not miss out on my child's life? And so I, you know, at that point, I think Google thought well of me and I had worked really hard and I was continuing to work hard. And I walked into my boss, who was the chief business officer of Google, and I asked Omid to pay for my daughter and my nanny to travel with me around the world in order to stay in the job. And, 
uh, Omid and also Eric Schmidt, the, you know, then the CEO of Google, both readily said yes to that ask. I didn't ask for it, assuming that I was do it, but also doing the calculus that the cost of replacing me, if they thought I was doing a good job, was pretty darn high. And it was certainly higher than what they were going to pay to have my daughter and nanny travel with me. Uh, and they said yes. And that's how I made that job work. Um, and then I negotiated at home with my husband for like, you know, when he was going to come meet me in Hong Kong. I moved with my family to, I moved with my daughter and nanny to Hong Kong for two months when we were building Google China and like had my husband come with our son and, and visit. I mean, it was like, a, it was not easy, but Google made it possible. And I did do the career calculus uh, and I did it not with a sense of entitlement, but a sense of value on both sides. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing story. And there's so many lessons in that. And one of them that really jumps out is you need to understand your value in the organization. You That's really first and foremost, what you need to be very clear on is the value that you're bringing to the organization because that's your leverage, right? Yeah, it's your leverage, but you also need to come in with a solution mindset, mindset. And I do say to people like, come in with some level of humility. If you come in being like, I'm so great, you need to give this to me. Like, yes, that's one negotiating stance. Another negotiating stance is like, hey, like this is something I've come up with. I realize this is an unusual ask. You know, I presume that you also have done this calculus and I'm trying to figure it out. And so I always believe you come with a, com with a combination of confidence and authenticity and certainly some level of humility and understanding people don't need to say yes to you. Um, but it's that if you can strike that right balance, I believe people are open and, and want to find the right solution, but you better come with a solution too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you define success for yourself? And has that definition changed over time? Uh, uh, I'm sure it has, um, as it probably has for everyone. Certainly I, I've, I've thought about and continue to think about material success. I mean, to say that I don't would be a joke. Um, I think about how many copies this book is going to sell and, you know, <laughs> I also think about whether or not it's going to have its, the impact I'd like it to have. So of course I think about material success, but, um, but mostly, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people. I'm not unique. Um, I don't really now worry that I have chits that need to be counted about whether people consider me successful or not. Um, I mostly worry about can I have impact and um, can I have as much impact as I want in, you know, in a role, in a book, you know, on other people's, you know, possibilities, what, what is it? So I think for me, success is about can I achieve more impact? Uh, and I'm, and my, and I'm, and I'm, I, and maybe this is just too esoteric for people, but um, I was raised, raised pretty religious. So mostly I feel at this point in my life, can I have the purpose and achieve the purpose I believe I'm on earth for? And so like, that's sort of like this, like ultimate kind of guiding principle, but mostly what that means is I wake up every day worried about impact far more than I do about sort of like, Hey, is somebody going to consider me successful or not? Yeah, I love that. Last question. Sure. If you could go back and give your 22-year-old self a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra, maybe it's something you tell your kids, what would that be? Um, it's so funny because like many people, I'm such a type A person. And like, if you think I'm intense today, imagine my 18-year-old self, which was like so uptight. Um, I mostly would say what, you know, what I'm sure you, you might say to your own friends, kids, your own kid, kids, which is like, it's all going to work out the way it's meant to. So chill. I think this idea that it's a winding course, but you're going to end up where you fit and you're going to thrive where you're fit. I think 
I think that would be my advice to my younger self, because I think then I was so worried about where I fit from somebody else's point of view. Like, you know, I, I'm worthy if I fit here. And now I'm like, mostly like, hey, you're going to end up where you fit and try and force fit something. Go for it. But, you know, uh, it's going to work out as it's meant to. Yeah, I love that. Sue Kender, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me. Really fun. It was a pleasure. Hey, friend, thanks so much for joining us this week. To learn a bit more about my guest today, Sukender Singh Cassidy, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 159. I would love to know what resonated with you and how you think about risk-taking and evaluating risk in your own life and career. I'd love to hear also any great stories that you have about deciding how to take a risk. How did you make the decision and what works for you as you contemplate risk going forward? Our dreams and definitions of success may differ, but we all face similar challenges in evaluating risks and in pushing ourselves to keep learning and growing. We also face similar challenges in setting our mindset to focus on what we can learn and how even and especially our setbacks can be some of our best teachers. Friend, if you're new to She Said, She Said podcast, I am delighted that you've joined us today and I hope you'll stick with us. Please be sure to subscribe or to follow the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out my Instagram at Laura Cox Kaplan, where I share regular updates on the content that we talk about on this podcast and lots of other things that are focused on mindset, positivity, and empowered thinking. Because I understand that your time is precious and limited, I work very hard to try to add value to your day. If you get a minute, I would be so grateful for your feedback on this or any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes. And if you're getting value from these episodes, please consider sharing a review with a few words about what resonates with you and why you're listening. Reviews and feedback are a huge help as we think about content and as I continue to fine tune and hopefully get better with each and every episode. Reviews also help others who are looking for content like this to find it. I'm so grateful to have you here, and I hope you found this investment in you well worth it. I'll see you again next time. Take care.